You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. We know that there is so much at stake in November's election on the local, state, and federal levels. And with our election rapidly approaching, we spend each episode from now until Election Day focusing on a different issue that is at stake. We know that the Jewish voter and the Jewish voter is not monolithic. And each of these issues is wrapped up and intertwined in the Torah that we teach and the Torah that we live each and every day. Today, we'll be focusing on abortion rights and reproductive justice, and I'm thrilled to welcome Sheila Katz, CEO of National Council of Jewish Women, and Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, scholar in residence at NCJW. Big news, uh, the the new scholar in residence at NCJW. (laughs) Thank you to both of you for being here. Thank you for having us. So I wanted to start off by asking you, uh, NCJW recently launched the hashtag Rabbis for Repro, a campaign for rabbis and cantors and Jewish clergy to teach and preach about reproductive rights uh, to their congregations. What led you to launch this campaign? In many ways, so NCJW has been in the space of reproductive justice before reproductive justice was a term. We helped found the first 10 birth control centers in this country that later turned into Planned Parenthood. We have been out on the streets, you know, fighting and fighting. And one of the things we notice is that religion comes up often in the debate around reproductive freedom and and whether or not these should be freedoms that people have. And when we are out in the world and in front of the Supreme Court protesting and reading news articles and everywhere that we show up, we have noticed a very loud voice saying that religion and abortion don't go together. Um, and, and that loud voice actually represents a very small amount of people who believe that. And what we realized is, as much as we knew our wonderful rabbi friends believed this, that we wanted to do more to support rabbis and cantors and educators to use whatever platform they had to counter that narrative and say very simply that Judaism permits abortion and sometimes requires it. And that of course, Jewish values say that we care about the individual well-being of, of you know, the person who's making decisions about their own bodies. And so we just wanted to create a space to really empower rabbis and educators to see this less as something that's political and much more rooted in our moral obligation around their Jewish values and to amplify that message really loud. I mean, the need is clear, right? The, there, there has been a certain hijacking of, of the conversation around religion and abortion. <laughs> Judaism permits abortion. It even sometimes requires it when the life of the pregnant person is at stake. We're all, you know, there's, Judaism is, is clear about what the laws of the land should be. And, um, and rabbis haven't been vocal about this. And internally in the Jewish community, it's a pastoral issue, right? One in four people who can become pregnant wind up having an abortion by the time they're 45. And so if we're not talking about this and educating our communities 
about what Jewish law says, then we're doing them a disservice. We're not signaling to them who's welcome in this community, who is welcome to come talk about what issues pastorally, and we're not out in the public square using our moral voices as clergy um, to offer a different voice about what uh, the First Amendment uh, demands around abortion rights. And, um, and we have this untapped opportunity to mobilize the Jewish community to be really here and present and doing the work to, to fight for everybody's safety and freedom, which is the job of Judaism. Um, right? I mean, there's this, it's such low hanging fruit. It's so obvious that this is stuff that we, we should be out in force and, and we're not. So let's fix that. Tanya, turning to you as uh, the rabbi, as the Mara da Atra, right? The <laughs> halakhic thinker and figure, we may see it as low hanging fruit, but for many who may not be knowledgeable and hear those voices, those prominent religious voices who often use the term, a term that I can't stand, of Judeo-Christian values, as if those on the religious right, the Christian right, are taking their values from Judaism when rabbinic tradition actually has quite different values. What is the, the evidence, the halakhic evidence that, that focuses on abortion? There, there's a lot. Um, also, before I get into it, we'll note that most of Judaism, most of the important moments that were developed in Judaism happened when we were living not in lands run by Christian people. So uh, 2,000 years of stuff developed in other, uh, other places. Um, and, uh, you know, you start from the Torah, right? In the book of Exodus, there's a story about two men who fight and one inadvertently causes a miscarriage. And in the text, it says if, um, if there's a miscarriage, but there's no a son, disaster, a harm, then one pays financial damages. And if there is an a son, a disaster, then we start talking about, um, you know, the death penalty or other sort of more significant responses. Basically, you know, the bottom line is... Um, if a fetus, a miscarriage, right, causing a fetus to not come, to, to, to leave the, the womb early, isn't murder. It's just, it's not murder, it's damages, it's something else. So you see right there, our conception of when life begins and personhood is radically different than that of Christians. Um, I'll also note that this is one of the, those passages is one of the famous places where there was a major mistranslation as the Torah was getting translated into Greek. Um, so they translate, instead of disaster, they say, you know, of the form. And so it becomes a conversation about like, how many months was the fetus developed? But it's a mistranslation and it's one with policy consequences today. Um, and then you look into rabbinic writings, like the Mishnah and then the Talmud, which is, um, you know, rabbinic writing on the Mishnah. And we've got very clearly if, um, if somebody is in labor and it's a dangerous labor, um, the pregnant person's life comes first and we are obligated to save their life and to sacrifice the fetus if that's going to be, you know, until, up until the moment of birth, right? Until that breath, that first breath. 
um, they're not they don't have a, they're not considered a soul in the same way you know personhood and we see things in the Talmud talking about how the fetus is part of the pregnant person's body and how the you know the first 40 days it's mere water and so that stream right that a fetus doesn't have personhood the same way a person who has been born does then leads to uh, you know there's tons of literature on this but basically the permissibility of abortion and some will say it's only permitted in very extreme circumstances. Some will say it is not forbidden, therefore it's permitted. Some will say it should only be permitted when um, it would cause mental or emotional, or, you know, physical or mental or emotional anguish. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's fair game, basically, as a medical procedure that people um, might undergo. In the current Congress, the 116th Congress, there are more women who are elected to positions than ever before, and still not enough. What relationship do you think there is between women holding these uh, positions of power and men not deciding what women should do with their bodies and ensuring a healthy and safe uh, and affordable abortion access? Yeah, listen, we always want the most diverse representation in our elected officials because we find that as it becomes more diverse, the needs of more diverse people are really met. And, and not only do we have the most um, women in Congress right now, but, but with that we have so many amazing black women who have been our partners. And it is really worth noting that if tomorrow, if I as a white woman, uh, you know, with reasonable means needed to have an abortion, I'd be able to go find a way to have it. This issue is disproportionately impacting Black women, and it is not um, random that that is the case. And as all of us in so many synagogues and rabbis and Jews commit to Black Lives Matter and commit to ending systemic racism, one of the things that we have to understand is that reproductive justice is a part of that conversation. And so for sure, we're starting to see the conversation shift. And the best example I can give lately of both having more women in Congress and more black women in Congress is around the Hyde Amendment. And, and the Hyde Amendment has traditionally always passed in the appropriations process. Really not exciting stuff, right? Um, not the thing people are like, oh, I'm into politics. Let's talk about appropriations. But it's very important because it is passed by Democrats and Republicans. It hasn't mattered if people are progressive. It has just been something that people are like, that's okay. And what the Hyde Amendment does is make it so that anyone on government insurance can't access abortion. And, and people on government insurance disproportionately are black. And so, you know, this is something that we see as a targeted attack on black people in this country. And, and I say people instead of women because trans men also need abortions, non-binary people also need abortions. This isn't only an issue that impacts women. Um, but for so long, the systemic racism embedded in our legislation, embedded in our thinking, has caused so many people to say, well, I guess that's okay. But it's not, it is not okay. And so um, Ayanna Presley recently has really been pushing to label the Hyde Amendment for what it is, racist and to make sure that we call it out. And we're interested to see as more of these voices continue to rise up to call out something that has been accepted as normal for so long. Like, can you believe it? it we're basically saying, if you have access to this insurance over here, you can have this healthcare procedure. But if you have access to the government's insurance, then you can't. 
And it really is disproportionately impacting black people. And that is why nothing has happened around it. And that's why we have to be louder about it. And it is worth noting that since COVID-19 happened, so many legislators have been using COVID as an excuse to ban abortion, abortions and abortion clinics. And guns in most states have been considered essential, but access to abortion clinics, which is time-sensitive healthcare, has not. And the Hyde Amendment passed as part of the CARES Act, the big act that helped so many Jewish organizations that so many of us were talking about with such you know, excitement. And I think you know, we know as Jews how to hold both happiness and sadness at the same time. And we really in that moment should have been saying, it is not okay that the Hyde Amendment passed as part of this because it meant that of any group that could have received their PPP loans and small business loans, the only groups that ended up being excluded were abortion providers, nonprofits that particularly focused on abortions, and folks who are immigrants. And so, you know, all of it, it was, was totally out there, but because it helped so many other people, you know, everybody was like, oh, this is fine, this is fine. And I think right now what we're trying to do, as women are in greater power than ever before, as we represent the majority of people in this country, the majority of voters as well, is that we say enough is enough and we're gonna call out systemic racism when we see it. We're gonna call out systemic sexism when we see it. And the rights of a fetus should not be greater than the rights of a human woman. And that we have a right to decide what happens with our own bodies in this moment. And, and I think there's just so many conversations that have to be shifted that we've accepted a patriarchal narrative for too long about what women ought to do and we've been shamed from talking about this as an issue. And the reality is we all love somebody who has had an abortion, full stop. And, and one of the things that we'd like to see start happening in addition to clergy beginning to talk about and normalize this as a part of healthcare, um, because it is, this is providing people with dignity, it's providing people with options, it's providing with them the ability to make decisions for themselves. Uh, we also want to normalize people talking about their own abortions in Jewish spaces because people have them for so many reasons. And all of those reasons are appropriate and acceptable. Well, we said that the 116th Congress has more women elected to it than ever before. Within this two-year period, while that Congress has been in session, specifically looking at 2019, there were almost 60 abortion restrictions passed in specific states. And so when we're talking about this on a federal level uh, and that narrative, what is the action to preventing such laws on a state level? Everybody first and foremost just needs to be aware, uh, especially since COVID-19 has hit. This is a healthcare issue, you know, and we actually, there was a great New York Times I shouldn't say great, a devastating New York Times article and op-ed that have come out kind of sharing the narratives of people who have needed to have abortions during this pandemic. And what happened early on is a lot of people, lawmakers, were using this as an excuse to try to shut down abortion clinics, right? There was really no logical reason to need to do it, but they were shutting down abortion clinics. And, and, it, and then it was making its way to the Supreme Court in each of these states. So on a day-to-day -day basis, people didn't know whether their abortion clinic would be open or not. And there was an example of somebody in Texas who needed to drive it was something over 600 miles in the middle of a pandemic where they can't stop, they can't sleep anywhere else, to go to an abortion clinic in another state only to find out when they got there that that abortion clinic had then been closed. 
and, and really that this really is a time sensitive procedure. There, there are more risks as, um, as things go on and people shouldn't have to wait that long. And so those are some of the laws that have been put into effect. People need to know about it. They need to know about what's happening in their own state. They need to speak out against it if they're upset about it. And one of the best ways to kind of come face to face, you know, for those who are healthy and not in vulnerable situations in this moment is to consider being an escort at an abortion clinic to actually see the people who are walking in to get abortions. And there's escorts because there are people outside yelling at them and shaming them. And you better believe those people are also not wearing masks. And these things are all somewhat connected around the sanctity of life, as I would say. And so, um, so those are some of the laws to be aware of. In addition, we had a massive Supreme Court case that, um, that came in our favor, um, but is probably going to be the last one we see that way. The only reason the Supreme Court case did not close down the abortion clinics that were in question is because of precedent, legal precedent that had already been decided on. But when a new abortion case comes to the Supreme Court, what we learned is with Kavanaugh being added there, there are now enough votes um, to make it so that we're gonna chip away at Roe. They can't overturn Roe, but basically this case came about because in Louisiana, there are these things called trap laws. They exist all over the country. The random requirements that abortion clinics have that nobody else has just to try to shut them down. And they include, Jesse, things as absurd as how wide the hallway has to be. And they made it to the hallway width has to be this random width that hallways just aren't. Most hallways are the same width and some are a little wider and they created a random number saying, this is the width the hallway has to be. And then the second random law, you know, that people have been putting on these abortion clinics is how close in proximity they need to be to a hospital, which by the way, in the state of Louisiana, where this came from, there have been a whopping total of zero patients who have needed to go to a hospital after going to an abortion clinic. And the reason it matters to focus on these is you can see the absurdity around hallway width. And as far as hospital goes, it means they're trying to shut down abortion clinics in rural areas. And where do rural areas impact? Oftentimes people who are lower income and oftentimes people who don't have the access to be able to get in a car and drive 600 miles to go somewhere else. So we are in essence saying, if you can't access abortion, then it's not really a constitutional right. And so we have to make sure that abortion is not just legal, but that it's accessible. And these are some of the things we pay attention to. The other law that people should look for are waiting periods. So as we continue with Louisiana, right, they have a 24-hour waiting period, which means you have to go to an abortion clinic, meet with somebody, and then you can't get an abortion unless you've waited 24 hours and you go back. And in a pandemic, it's already bad enough to begin with because it's totally medically unnecessary. You know, women and people who can get pregnant are perfectly capable of making up their mind around their own health procedures but it's just there to kind of delay processes and make things harder. And so these are the things everybody should look towards and then they should call their lawmakers and say that they consider abortion as part of healthcare and they consider it essential and time sensitive and therefore abortion clinics need to remain open. This is one of the key things that NCHAW does on the ground. Like there are 180,000 advocates working around the country, um, 58 sections, in I think every 50 states, all 50 states, um, 
There are people everywhere who are doing the work to try to address these things as they're coming up, who are lobbying state and local lawmakers, who are showing up, who are doing advocacy work, who are developing campaigns. Um, and so if this is an issue for, you know, whoever's listening, hi. Um, if this is an issue that matters to you, and I hope you understand now why it should, um, like NCJW is doing the work, we have the infrastructure. And so this is a great place to get hooked up to, to start being useful. Yeah, and I'll just add, Danya, this is really about vulnerable people, like telling somebody what they must do with their body for not just nine months for everything afterwards is unfathomable. There are no laws around this designated towards men. And, and this really does come from um, sexist laws, patriarchal laws that, you know, are continuing to try to get women to stay home and make babies without any decisions for themselves. And we've come too far in this country to go backwards. And this really is one of the first moments, you know, most um, issues around human rights, you don't see all these steps backwards after you've taken steps forward. And we are seeing a moment right now where it is becoming so daunting. And that's why people, you know, it's easy to get overwhelmed. My favorite um, teacher, Ruth Messenger, um, one of my favorite quotes of hers is that we cannot retreat to the convenience of being overwhelmed. And this is overwhelming, but the way we take action is by showing up, by learning what's happening. You don't have to learn every single state, just what's happening in your state um, and, and how you can continue to let your lawmakers know what matters. And for those in the Northeast uh, in particular, where a lot of these rights are a given, we have to just not then close our eyes to the fact that states in the South, and particularly states where there are Black people and low-income people, where this is being targeted towards them. And we have to get involved then in those locations as well. There was a case, and I can't believe as many people I know who don't know about this, in Georgia, leave Georgia, um, a little more than a year ago, maybe about a year and a half ago, where a woman was shot by her partner and she lost her fetus. And afterwards, she went to jail for provoking that argument that led to her getting shot because she lost her fetus. And the person who shot her did not go to jail. Like, I am not making this up. This is bonkers, right? There are laws saying that if you cause a fetus to die, or if you, um, or cross over a state line or help someone cross over a state line, you're considered an accomplice to murder for up to 90 years in jail. This is happening in so many states in the South. And so thankfully this case got national attention and then she was able to get out of jail. But this is the, this is the construct of what we're starting from. Someone who got shot by her partner and then she went to jail, that is just nuts no matter what people believe these days. You should be able you know, the sanctity of our own lives matter here. And so, so I just think these are things to pay attention to. I would encourage as it gets overwhelming to just think really simply, what is one thing I can do today, right? I can give a donation to an organization working on this. I can volunteer to be an escort. I can push through legislation. I can call my member of Congress. And outside of those things, you know, the other things I would say is, you can talk about your abortion if you've had one. You can talk about loving somebody who's had an abortion. You can talk about why this matters, that people have this as essential health care. 
that's a very wide range of things people can do. And I'd say if everybody just does one of those things and moves forward, we're gonna actually create a very different culture that values vulnerable people and allows them to make their own healthcare decisions. Can we go back to some of these bonkers laws for, for a second? Some of these crazy, not just abortion bans, but impossible paths that one needs to take in order to gain access to abortion in some of these states. A recent Pew Research uh, polls showed that over 70% of Americans support Roe v. Wade. Over 70% of Americans support uh, a person's right, their human rights to safe healthcare to a safe abortion. So how is it that these states, if that's the case, an overwhelming number, way more than the popular vote percentages in a presidential election, how is it that these states are passing these laws? Is that because of gerrymandering? Is that because, again, we still haven't done a good enough job of tearing down the patriarchy and there are too many men in, in these elected positions on a state level who are deciding what uh, somebody who can get pregnant can do with their bodies? Yes, yes, and yes. I would say this is the power of the vote. Um, there are people who will vote for candidates if they have a particular position on abortion that then they get into office and they do exactly what they said they were going to do. So, you know, we're nonpartisan. We're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we do think that people should be factoring in this issue to how they consider voting. And we do think people have to be louder and it can't only be women. It can't like any change that has been made, but in this country has happened because people of all backgrounds have come together. And it's usually been because the people who are in this, in the space of privilege, whose bodies aren't on the line have come around. And, and one of the reasons this is being perpetuated in these spaces, it's not just because it's sexist, it really is because it's racist too. This mm -hmm. is a way to control black bodies. And, and we really have to name it as such. And, and it's how some of these people are getting elected. And there's really not a lot of outrage when these things happen. Most, most people I would say don't know what the laws are in their state. And, and that's a problem. So, you know, uh, so vote first and foremost know what people's positions are on these issues. And I would say one of the issues that we take on at NCJW that we've been a leader in for 20 years is around courts and federal courts. And, and the reality is the Supreme Court isn't the only space that matters. But one of the things we've seen lately with the Trump administration is that they've been stacking federal judges with young conservative men who are anti-abortion and anti-trans. Federal positions like that for the courts are lifetime positions. They're not only appointing people who you know, have a history of an activist agenda in this, but they're appointing unqualified people according to the American Bar Association. And when Kavanaugh was put into office, you saw protests in the street, you saw people speaking out about it. But as these things are happening, people are really, really, really quiet. And you actually can't get the laws that we want. We can't fight the discriminatory laws we want, if there are judges in power who believe that that's appropriate. And the best example I can give as a Yankees fan is to say, can you just imagine a referee umpire wearing a Yankees hat and Yankees gear all year long and then like judging the World Series, right? Like you would never put somebody in that position. It doesn't make any sense. You can't have judges on the court. It doesn't matter if they're 
for or against abortion, if they have really actively been an activist in that space, they can't be a judge, right? Because they're not partial. And so it's not that we're seeking to put people on the courts who have a particular position about abortion. We're looking to have fair, qualified, and independent judges. And so one of the ways we get around these discriminatory laws is by making a ruckus around who these people are that are being appointed to federal you know, judges. More than 20% of all the federal judiciary positions have been appointed by the Trump administration. And the majority of them are conservative men in their 40s who are gonna be there for decades and decades. So if we wanna get at the heart of some of these abortion laws, we also have to get involved in federal judiciary. And I realize that that's like the issue that we all learned about in high school and everybody's forgotten about, and it's, and it's very complicated. But the simple version is this. We have to have independent and fair people in the court or else, or else our democracy doesn't work. And I, so, so vote, get involved in the federal space, make sure you know about your abortion laws, and then just do your part in your community to make sure you're talking about this in a way that's normalized. Abortion doesn't have to be seen as a political issue, right? This is a healthcare issue. It's a moral issue. And it's one that if we just talk about it in a slightly different way, we can start to make it more accessible in our communities, um, more fair in our communities, and we can just actually change the landscape as a whole. And I think I think it's really, really important. I, you know, <laughs> so, so much of what you said was absolutely right on. And I just want to just emphasize again that I think there are a lot of people who, A, are feeling very overwhelmed right now. There are so many legitimately horrible things happening and it gets easy, so easy to be shorted out and to say, to sort of shut down, you doom scroll, right? That thing where you look at Twitter and it's just, you know, message after message of, of horrible things. And But I think the choice to take action um, I think is actually very healing and invigorating. It reminds you, you have some power and that you can be useful. Um, and I think a lot of times with the, as the abortion restrictions have gotten, you know, every single time they get piled on, I think it's easy for people who have a certain amount of privilege to place that lower on the list because of, of, whether active racism or the sense of like, well, it doesn't really affect me, right? Because uh, Sheila noted, if you have enough money and particularly if you have white privilege, um, you can get an abortion. You can find a way to get an abortion. And so that sense of, of impact doesn't feel as urgent because it's not impacting me. Um, and I think it's helpful to just sort of pause and, and, and check yourself when you read something about something happening in the news and you know how do we decide what's urgent and you know urgent for who I think are, are important questions we can ask and you know again like what one or two things that we can be useful uh, around this this week and it's, it's good for us it's good for the universe I want to come back to this idea of taking action for a second Full disclosure, something that I regularly wrestle with is when is it my role as an ally to speak up and mm -hmm. when is it my role as an ally to step back and prop up other voices? So during especially this Rabbis for Repro campaign, for example, um, I 
identify as a man, um, as, as a cis white male, somebody who has a lot of privilege. Um, what is my role here in teaching and preaching about abortion rights, about reproductive justice uh, versus uh, amplifying the voices of members of my own community who have had abortions and who are equally invested in this fight to ensure abortion rights. And I say that as somebody who's part of a very egalitarian community, but we know that the Jewish community is no different than uh, every other community in America, that as much as we claim equality and strive for equality, uh, it takes a lot of work to continue to tear down the patriarchy and a community that's based on thousands of years of a patriarchal tradition uh, still has a lot of work to do. It's true. There's no, there is no doubt that we, the Jews, still have plenty of work to do on um, uprooting our patriarchy. Um, and, you know, and I think it's crucial for allies to use their places and platforms and corners, everyone, um, and as appropriate. Um, there's a, a AVE, African American Vernacular uh, expression, staying in your lane. Um, that I think is really instructive, right? Like, what are the ways that I can, from my position, what is the thing that I should be saying that can be useful? Who am I speaking to? Who am I speaking for? Who am I amplifying? Like, what, what you know, my dalit emote, right? Like, my four, um, <laughs> I translated, my little cubits. corner. Of, yeah. Of the, yeah, my, my cubits of space. Like, what, what's, what, what is, what's my role here? Um, you know, I think for you, Jesse, and for, you know, male rabbis and cantors and other Jewish clergy, it's very clear, like, we're here to teach Torah. We need you to teach Torah, to use your, um, your learning and your smicha, your ordination and your position in the community and your moral authority and your moral voice um, for this issue. And... And, you know, as part of that, weaving in, amplifying voices. And, he you know, you, there's a story that in the Rabbis from Repro website, I was like, you know, I added a lot of resources of story banks, right? There are a lot of people who have told their stories in public ways. You can, you know, someone has chosen to share this publicly. So that's something that can be lifted up. And so that it's not, you know, we need to make sure that when we talk about abortion, that we're not only talking about how, and I'm saying this as a, as a privileged white cis woman like it's not just about how it affects me personally when i talk about the ways that it does and then you know and i have to talk about what's beyond that and whose voice am i bringing in when i do that um and whose frameworks and who am i quoting right we as ally when i'm an ally in some places in the universe i'm an ally in some places i'm directly affected like as allies we need to think about what we can change and how we can make that change um, you know, as a white person, you, white people have, have the ability to address the racism in their place of work. They maybe shouldn't be speaking for, the, you know, but, but in coalition with, right, in partnership with, um, you know, who from a local reproductive justice organization, um, and reproductive justice is a framework that was developed by Black and Indigenous women um, that really brings a very, very concerted racial and economic uh, justice lens to issues around reproductive rights and health and safety 
you know, in the larger context of, of historic and, and continued systemic racism now. Um, look, there are amazing reproductive uh, justice organizations, so who can be invited to speak at Shul, right? And yet, we also know that probably the people leading reproductive justice shouldn't be teaching Rashi. Like, that's your job, right? <laughs> so, you know, we, we all need to, we need to, to we, all, we need all hands on deck, and everybody needs to figure out where on deck they're supposed to be. I would also just add, Jesse, I'm so happy you asked this question. And I, I guess I'll just give this message. You know, we're exhausted. We're exhausted <laughs> yes. from yeah. having to constantly like fight for this right to just be able to make a health decision for our own body. It is ridiculous that in 2020 we're still at this. And it's ridiculous that, you know, no one else feels like they're able to kind of engage in the conversation. And so I just want to give permission to you and to everyone, this is an issue that impacts everybody. And we have to start engaging on it like that. Like, you know, uh, uh, not to be overly critical of other Jewish organizations that make their policy decisions around what issue they are, but we are one of the only Jewish organizations that is focused on this issue. And that's not okay. Like, we're happy, like, if more people get involved with us, and that's wonderful. Right. But we wanna be in this with everyone. This is a Jewish issue. This is an issue that impacts everyone. And so with that comes the exploration that needs to happen about like where you step in and where you step back, of course. And I wanna say that like as a white woman in this space, I'm having the same exact conversation right now about when it's appropriate for me to step up and step back since this is disproportionately impacting black bodies. And I say, you know, what keeps me in it is to make sure that any platform I am using, I am talking about systemic racism and I am talking about how this impacts those groups and I am lifting up where I can groups for people to listen to. And I would just say as a pedagogy, NCJW takes our lead from organizations run by black women serving black populations. And so, so I think there's ways to lean in to these and to take action. And I would just say right now, it would be welcome for more men in particular, and cis white men, to be getting involved in this, to be able to make sure this is a part of the narrative, this becomes normal in the conversation, and that we're pushing forward as a community together. And the black organizations that I would just say that I just think are worthwhile for folks to look into on this call, we happen to love working with Sister Song, with Sister Reach, with the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, with the National Birth Equity Collaborative, um, these are amazing groups. And I would just say there's a lot of language people use that all mean different things. Reproductive health, reproductive rights, reproductive choice, reproductive freedom, reproductive justice. And I do want to point people to the lens of reproductive justice. This was a term coined by Black women to actually make sure the intersection, particularly around access, for low-income Black women and Black people who can get pregnant to be able to show the connecting intersection issues around health and reproductive health rights and justice all together. And there are great trainings out there around being able to talk about abortion and healthcare and sex education in the context of reproductive justice. And so I would say as a community, as a Jewish community, um, we want to move from actually talking about this as reproductive choice to start talking about it as reproductive justice. So I'm in this with you as a white woman whose body is on the line and I'm still exhausted in this, but also making sure that wherever I can, 
I am highlighting the plight of black women as it relates to this, and I'm making space for them. So having us on this call is one way to, you know, give, give a platform. And then just thinking about who else you bring along. When I spoke at a rally outside the Supreme Court around June Medical Services versus Russo, the abortion case, and I learned they wanted me as an opening speaker, I thought that was lovely, and decided to ask if I could bring a reverend with me, um, a wonderful black woman who I've worked with before. And they were like, oh, of course you could do it together. And so there are moments where I know I have to just even not show up to that platform. And there are moments where if you have a seat at the table, pulling another seat up alongside it and giving someone that seat is one of the best ways to move forward. But gosh, we're tired. So please, you know, come in, take the baton from us and, and help us. There's new laws every single day. And the more and more you get involved in this, it, it can be a lot. So, um, so we welcome everyone and we're just so grateful, you know, for your leadership and thinking about this and to the, you know, almost 1000 rabbis who have signed on to the Rabbis for Repro Pledge. I would say this is the next topic, right? Yep. How do we all know our place in engaging in this? How do we hold the right space? And how do we actually do this in a way that's not going to cause harm, but it's gonna call more people in? Yes, amen to all of that. And I also wanna add that abortion is still highly stigmatized in America and in the Jewish community. And we need to normalize being able to even talk about abortion. Right? Talk about people's experiences with abortion. And I don't think, um, I think that is one important way, both pastorally and in terms of mobilizing people to really understand how significant an issue this is, um, be able to, to talk about this as an, as an everyday reality. Again, one in four people who can get pregnant in their lifetime has an abortion, and we don't talk about it. So normalizing uh, in leadership spaces that, you know, whether it's talking from the BIMA about abortion as a procedure that people have, um, encouraging cis men to talk more about the ways that abortion has impacted their lives and the lives of people that they love and have connected to. All of these ways we can start to help people understand. I mean, theoretically, right, the personal is political, um, but it's so real and it impacts where people feel safe, um, whether people feel traumatized, and when they get involved and how they show up. So, um, you know, we all have so much power in helping to try to, to change what's happening now. I really hope that the thousand plus uh, who have signed on to the Rabbis for Repro campaign, I should say this, this is my rabbinic bias, although that's what it's called, it's rabbis and cantors, it's Jewish clergy who have signed on to participate, uh, will really use their platforms. I, I know that I will. Um, one last question for you about ensuring long-term abortion access. Roe v. Wade has never been codified legislatively, and there's some talk, especially with a change on the Supreme Court and concern that depending on what the results of November's election will be, there'll be a, a, a deep swing one way or the other for a very long time and what that Supreme Court looks like. And there's been some talk most recently in a recent New York Times article about if one party or the other controlled 
the House, the Senate, and the White House to codify Roe v. Wade as law to pass a bill to not have to depend on the Supreme Court. Well, one of the things I would just say is what's hard about the way the laws are right now is it's based off of like what zip code you're in. And this shouldn't, this shouldn't depend on what zip code you're in. This is healthcare. Like everything, every expert comes down to this is a healthcare procedure and it's a constitutional right. And so, you know, we are fully supportive of figuring out ways to make sure that everybody everywhere has both the ability to have an abortion and access to have an abortion, right? Not just written on paper. If it's written on paper, but your closest abortion clinic is five states away, you know, that's not abortion access. So those are things we're, we're eager to follow. And, you know, the Supreme Court and what potential openings there are and all those things are certainly top of mind. And what I would say matters most to us, again, is like as soon as the court is politicized, which it has been a lot in, in, the, in the recent years, we st it, it jeopardizes our very democracy. And so we do need to go back to a point where we're really thinking about qualified, unbiased judges um, who we can respect. There's so many people who are on a different side of the political aisle than me that I would say are super qualified to be a judge because you know they're gonna be consistent and hear the case thoughtfully. And that's really where we need to go back. And what I'd say is, you know, it's a matter of time before the Supreme Court is going to get, you know, a new case. There's already one being talked about. Um, however, if we don't fix what's happening at statewide in the precincts around federal judges, it, it doesn't even matter what's happening there because that's really where the decisions are gonna be made. So instead of waiting for the last resort, right, the Supreme Court of the United States, we actually have to start several steps back and start paying attention to what's happening in our own federal judiciary locally and making sure we're advocating um, for judges that are fair. We're gonna be launching a website in September that actually flags judges as fair, independent, or qualified. And we will be making a recommendation that anyone who has three check marks you know, that people advocate for them to get pushed through and anyone who has any X mark that we don't advocate for them to get through. So we're going to have an easy way that people can search by state and by where they live to be advocating on this issue. Um, that's going to be essential to make sure um, that, that we don't chip away at Roe v. Wade. And again, something federally would be certainly welcome because this really shouldn't be um, a decision based on where somebody's born or how much money they have. I guess I'd, I would end on the note that religious freedom comes up often as a part of this conversation. And it's something we have to think about as Jews and doing this work. And everything we know about religious freedom says that it should be a shield to protect people and never a sword to discriminate. And so we wanna make sure, even with our viewpoints about this, that we are never putting our viewpoints on other people. What we're advocating for here from a place of religious freedom is that every individual gets to make their own moral choice based off of their religious beliefs, their values, and what they wanna do around their own bodies. And we don't wanna legislate that for them. And so that's something that we're excited as we think about this work and pushing this through just to make sure at the end of the day, our laws give everybody the ability to engage in a way that's going to be um, dignifying for them. Amen. Thank Amen. you so much to Sheila Katz, CEO of National Council of Jewish Women, and Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, scholar in residence at NCJW, for joining us in this conversation today. 
Uh, you can follow them on Twitter. If you are not following Danya on Twitter, then you are doing something <laughs> wrong. She, I feel like, is the official rabbi of Twitter. Yep. You can follow her at the R-A-D-R. That's T-H-E-R-A-D-R. You can follow Sheila on Twitter at S-H-E-I-L-A-K-A-T-Z-1 and National Council of Jewish Women on Twitter at NCJW. Of course, follow me as well at J-M-O-L-I-T-Z-K-Y. Don't forget to vote. Vote early and make sure your vote is counted. Stay safe, everyone, and take care.